Welcome to Hey There Sunshine. We all know life can be dark and grey at times, but this podcast is about finding your sunshine and how to have more of it in our lives. If you want to hear real stories from everyday people, chats with health professionals and self-reflections, then this is the podcast for you. Let's break the stigma of mental health and open up the conversations. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Hey There Sunshine podcast. Today I have my first guest, the beautiful Katie Davies Plummer. Katie is my friend. She is from she is a Bakindi woman and a mum, an amazing Aboriginal artist, and a provisional clinical psychologist. She's nearly finished her degree. But before we get stuck into our chat with Katie, I'm just going to give you a quick recommendation. And that recommendation is called the Time Tree app. It has honestly changed how our our entire family functions. It's a calendar app where, you know, you can enter in everyone's stuff. And, you know, Chris and I can book in our stuff. We know what's going on with the boys. All our appointments go in there. And it's just allowed for more freedom because of being able to enter everything in. It's just been an absolute game changer. Highly recommend. So today, this chat with Katie, it is honestly something that I think everybody needs to hear. It is really heartbreaking listening to how she was disconnected to Aboriginal culture, but also really inspiring. So I know you're all going to really enjoy listening to this story. Let's get stuck in. Hello, and welcome to a very professional episode of hey there sunshine katie and i already have the giggles katie is my first guest and we have taken over a minute to actually start recording (laughs) because we've just been laughing um so welcome katie thank you so much for being my first guest on my podcast thank you for having me on it yeah, it's so good to have you here. And like, yeah, when I thought of starting a podcast, you were definitely one of the people that I was just really keen to get on for multiple reasons. Um, one being that you're trained to be a psychologist, which is obviously going to bring a lot of um, insight into um, the podcast. But also, I think you've got so much to share. You've been through all sorts of things. And this is going to be one of a three part mini series mm-hmm. um with you covering a few different parts I guess of your life um but yeah first of all I want to know what are you grateful for today so today I'm gonna keep it simple um <laughs> I'm <laughs> really grateful for my health my physical health mm. and my family's physical health um I'm sure along this podcast journey with you that we'll talk about some things that I've been through in terms of my health but Mm. for me like just a day that I was able to go to the gym today and I was able to go for a long walk um and yeah six months ago I wouldn't have been able to do that so yeah just being able to have my physical health and my family will be physically healthy is yeah something really big that I'm grateful for today Mm, I just got goosebumps like all up my back because Mm. I just yeah I will go into that later but yeah. yeah that's so like isn't it insane like just the chronic pain that you were in and now yeah. to not be in that and to be able to do those things is just incredible so that's yes yeah, 
such a great thing to be grateful for at the moment. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so Katie and I know each other. Um, we were both working at the same school. And mm-hmm. um, what was your role um, at that school, Katie? Um, it was an ACEO. A, yeah, ACEO. There's so many acronyms. It was mm-hmm. Aboriginal Community Engagement Officer. Mm-hmm. I think at the, it's called something different at high school, but primary school it was, yeah, overall like a cultural um, advisor, engagement, educator, well-being, pretty mm-hmm. much everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And had you studied social work to do that or what? No, um, I had gone straight from my undergrad. So I'd done my first three years of Bachelor of Psychology um Mm -hmm. and then I did my honours year and then after Mm -hmm. my honours year I went straight into like case management work doing youth work Um, Mm -hmm. and I did that for about a year and then I switched to working in schools after about a year on the ground of doing case management stuff so um I think the minimum to do an ACO role is like youth work or community services type um knowledge and TAFE certificates and stuff like that so it's quite broad um it's also for I know there's a lot of elders and stuff that do that role so they obviously Mm. cultural knowledge um behind them so yeah it's not necessarily a role that you have specific qualifications for it's more so your connections and your knowledge um and then a degree or TAFE certificate's like a bonus so yeah yeah yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because I think there was about three years in a row where I had an Aboriginal child or mm-hmm. maybe even two mm. in my class. So we yep. worked together quite a bit for, yeah, a few years there and we both got married at the same time and yep. got pregnant at a similar time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we had lots in common, lots to ch- chat about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, yeah, obviously when we both um, were pregnant and, I, yeah, we – kept in touch which mm-hmm. was so nice and yeah yeah it's, it, it's so nice to we don't see each other very often but you're always someone that when I do um catch up with you it's always just like no times past so yeah yeah it's so nice yeah. um so today we are going to be focusing sort of on your childhood experiences mm-hmm. um I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit like about your family background about your childhood um yeah, I guess where you came from, um, your experiences at school and all that sort of thing. Yeah, um, so I was born in Adelaide here in uh, Salisbury and I was the fourth born to dad. So dad's got three previous children from a previous marriage. Um, mm-hmm. So I have four sisters and so dad's got five girls, which is interesting oh, wow. for him, yeah. Um, so yeah, born in Adelaide, dad was born in Broken Hill um, so dad's Aboriginal and mum's not Aboriginal. Mum was actually born in Port Piri. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, Port Piri, oh. and then moved to Adelaide when she was like two years old. Um, yeah. And then dad moved to Adelaide when he was like 25, 24. Yeah. He was a lot older. Um, so yeah, grew up around Salisbury, Powerful Gardens, um, and then moved to like Goldview Heights, Golden Grove kind of area. Um, so yeah, I went to primary school in that area. I had a bit of a tricky time at primary school. I was a very, um, 
what's a nice way to put it shy child mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah I wasn't great at making friends I was really quiet and I just kind of followed the crowd I wasn't I would never go up and talk to someone like just off the cuff I wasn't a very outgoing kid um wow, I just can't imagine that now I know I was I used to hide behind mum I was like a little I was mute basically yeah. um yeah. And a lot of that, I think, stemmed from, especially when I was really little, like five and six, I remember starting primary school. And that was kind of the first time I realised that I had brown skin. Um, and it was just from this other little kid that had looked at me and said that I hadn't had a bath or something because my skin was darker than his and he didn't understand why it was a different colour to his. Um, and there wasn't very many brown kids at my school. So mm. I kind of came home really upset and was wondering why this child <laughs> thought that I needed to have a bath. How old were you then, do you think? I was about five. Yeah. Five or six. And that's a really hard age to try and explain mm. that to a five or six-year-old. Yeah. Um, so mum kind of did her best and just said, oh, you know, some people have lighter skin and some people have darker skin and this little person obviously just hasn't had that many interactions with people that have darker skin. Mm. wrong with it and and all that good stuff but from that kind of young experience I learned to associate my brown skin with it being a negative thing and mm-hmm. something to be proud of or to be spoken about or anything like that so that kind of set me on the path of not wanting to connect or learn about any of my identity as an Aboriginal woman a little Aboriginal kid, I didn't want anything to do with it and my family didn't either, to be honest. Was, oh, really? Yeah. They were very, very disconnected. Dad was very disconnected um, because, yeah, his mum is very disconnected so she just didn't want to talk about it, which there's a lot of reasons for. But um, Yeah, it, I can imagine. Yeah, it's still tricky yeah. to kind of grapple with that because you're getting a lot of the racism from other kids but I didn't have that cultural strength. Mm. be a barrier to that so that, yeah. yeah and you'd prob- you probably you probably didn't have any or much knowledge about your own culture to to be proud or to no. like to kind of have a bit of a backbone and stick up for yourself and like talk about all the cool things that mm-hmm. there are about your culture yeah um yeah it was yeah it just became a big shame thing and it was kind of something that until I kind of grew older and learnt more about it and got more connected and understood things deeper. It was a bit of just a survival survival mechanism to mm. like blend in with the crowd and be quiet and not draw attention to myself. Um, but it still inevitably happened um, quite a bit. But I can't. So I, sorry. sorry. Like I've heard, like you've told me about that before. Mm. Were there, are there any other instances that stand out of, of kids saying stuff like that to you? Um, there was this one kid in like year five, so getting on a bit older, that had obviously like on in hindsight, I can understand now where it's coming from, especially from a psychologist perspective. Mm-hmm. But as a little like 10 year old kid, you don't have that. Um, and he kept calling me a word that I won't say but it's in reference to a cheese talking yeah. about Aboriginal people and he kept calling me that like every single day. He wouldn't call me by my name. He would just call me that. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, and it got bad to the point where he would make other people call me that and they would throw cheese at me. 
yeah at like recess and lunchtime so oh my god yeah it made me just like want to go inside myself if I was like a little turtle I just wanted to like get back in the shell and not have anybody like look at me or think anything of my dark skin or think that I was Aboriginal or talk about being Aboriginal or anything so the easiest thing for me to do was to say I was Italian or Greek or Maori or like anything um, that wasn't Aboriginal because um, that was the only way that I kind of saw to like protect myself from that but it didn't really work <laughs> long term but yeah in the moment my little child brain like that was the only way that I could really see to get people to leave me alone yeah that is just horrific and I'm guessing you like didn't tell any teachers or anything no 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 probably parents I reckon I told mum and she was like real confused too because our family was just it was something we never spoke about so she was like well why do they think you're Aboriginal like I don't you know our family doesn't go around telling people that we're Aboriginal so why do they think that and I was like mum look at me like at that time I was really dark (laughs) really dark skin Mm -hmm. just more like my features were more prominent I guess to look at me so it was just an easy thing for them to pick on like kids are always going to find something that's different about you yeah and that was my thing and then I had this um I have a birthmark Mm-hmm. It's on my under my left eye and it's darker like pigmentation so then the kids would say that that was the aboriginal part of me because it was darker than the rest of me oh yeah so then that became a point of like severe like insecurity so I went and tried to get that lasered off because <laughs> it was like the thing that they then kept picking me on like picking on me about um, when the, how old would you, where, would you have been then? Yeah, about eleven. Oh my gosh! Yeah, wow, eleven or twelve, but the laser just turned it into a scar. Yeah. Okay. So it didn't it didn't really help anything. So yeah, it's been many many years of like running away from who I actually was because it just wasn't something that was accepted or something that was you know taught at all. Like we didn't learn about it at school. Mm. And if we did, it was a really negative stereotype. Yeah. What it meant to be Aboriginal. It was such a different time then, wasn't it? Yeah. Like I know we've still got a lot of way to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have come, I think, fairly far yeah. since the 90s <laughs> um, in terms of education. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so what was it like then going into high school? Um, high school high school was like positive and negative for me. I guess I guess I, I even say this to the kids that I work with now, like there's always gonna be something that we struggle with as humans. It just kind of depends for you, like on your life experience on what's happened, what's gonna be your thing that you struggle with. So mm. for me it was like fitting in and socially and trying to find friends and just not feel ever feeling accepted anywhere but academically I found that really easy and that was never like a struggle for me apart from I procrastinated a lot like every other teenager and yeah. stressed myself out um but the actual work itself 
I found quite easy. So I didn't have the stress of struggling academically on top of not fitting in socially, which I'm really, really thankful for because I don't know how I would have coped if I was dealing with both. Yeah, um, that would been a lot. Yeah, because then there's just no like I can see why the motivation for a lot of young kids to go to school is like at zero. Mm. You're struggling in every area at school and you don't feel like you have any safe place or any reason to want to go. It's really tricky to get yourself that motivation to go. But, yeah, I always had academic stuff to fall back on and I always made friends with teachers. Like I was the kid that made friends with teachers and I had music so I would sing and play piano. So I had days. Year nine was the worst. So year nine, what is it with so, year nine? Kind of shit. So so bad. Um, <laughs> just like horrendous. It was almost like you know the movies when there's like a clicky cot like mean girl situation. Mm. Yeah, it was like that, but in mm. real life. So there were like days where I would eat in the music room by myself and just play piano by myself and. Yeah, it just was horrendous for a whole year. Um, And, like, at that time it wasn't such a spoken about thing to, like, go to the school counsellor or go to a psychologist or, like, I don't even think mum and dad knew that was an option, like, thinking back because they never suggested, like, they were never like, oh, maybe we should talk to someone. Yeah. It's just like, oh, it's just teenage stuff, like, girls will be girls and blah, 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 but when you're living it, it feels like the end of the world. And when you feel like you don't have anyone to talk to, it can get like really, really tricky. So I think year nine was worst. And then I found like two or three friends towards the end of year nine. I just completely broke away from the friendship group that I was somewhat in. I wasn't actually in it, but I was on the outskirts of it. And I was like, right, this is, we're not doing this anymore. So I yeah. broke away from them and went to a different friendship group and then just kind of floated around from, like, year 10 onwards. Um, but, yeah, never, like, 100% felt like I fit in anywhere. Okay. So, yeah. And then year 12, like, I'm really perfectionistic. So year 11 and 12 got tricky academically because I have such high standards for myself that are pretty unrealistic. But in my teenage mind... <laughs> There was like an ATAR score that I needed to get. So mm. a lot of pressure. Get fixated, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah. It's very easy. Yeah. Um, did you experience much racism in high school or is it more just like your typical um, te- like teenager? Yeah. It was more like teenage bullshit. But then I also went the other spectrum in high school because when I was in high school everyone started getting the fake tans and like being tan yes and became like popular and like in yes so then it became I can never say this word it's like fetish size fetish <laughs> say that word where people would acknowledge my skin color but not my identity or not want to talk about it or ask me about it and I didn't either like I was still very much the turtle in the shell but they'd Mm -hmm. be like oh my gosh your skin you're so lucky like you're so brown it must be so good to just like go out in the sun for two seconds and be black like I'm so jealous um so it went more down that route which I would take any day over 
what I experienced in primary school. Yeah, than people throwing fucking cheese yes, at you. Yes, it, it was a marked improvement. Um, yeah, and see, like, we're not going to go down this path, but just, you know, people got so up in arms about um, the brand oh. change, changing the name. Yeah. And like, stories like that, mm. like, that is exactly why that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. But <laughs> we'll be here forever. Yeah. And I know you. I know. I know. Sometimes, like it, you just have to protect yourself in terms of going to that as well. Yeah. There's so many rabbit holes I could fall down, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, try, I try not go there. So, what would you say your self-esteem was like, sort of throughout primary and high school? I would say overall, like very low but the shining light was my intelligence. So Mm -hmm. I began to build like my entire identity as a person off of how smart I was and how many A's I could get and the uh, the scores that I was going to get. And even in primary school, I remember like wanting to be the best in the class at the times tables or the first person to read 10 books or like it was always my focus was always like being the smartest and being the best, which in the end, like undid me, you know, 15 years later, that was not yeah. a great way to build your personality based off one thing that if that falls, then everything falls. <laughs> it's not the best idea. But it was one thing that people couldn't challenge me on in a way. Like all the other aspects of my personality and my identity and who I was, like could be picked apart and bullied. And people were bullying me for being smart as well. Like I got the whole, you're a nerd, you're this, you're that, because being smart wasn't that cool in the 90s. Um, But I didn't care as much about that because I was like, nah, I like getting A's. Like I (laughs) really fun getting A's. (laughs) Yeah, found your thing. Like, yeah, academics was your thing. Yeah, yeah. And thank goodness for that because everything else like the way I just I wish I could like have a video of myself at like between 8 to 14 where I didn't like looking people in the eye I didn't look up very much I was very very shy would never ever speak unless someone spoke to me and even then like I would speak really quietly or like look down I just had like no confidence in myself yeah um but, yeah, the only time that I felt somewhat okay was when I was doing work or if I was singing because I got a lot of positive reinforcement for the singing stuff as well. Yes, yeah, that praise, that, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and it diversified. Most likely you were looking for that, um, yeah, I guess that acknowledgement mm-hmm. of, yeah. Um, what's that? I'm trying to think of, like, one of the love languages yeah, like words of affirmation. Yes, yeah. words of affirmation. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Which I yeah. can see now. Yeah, and I think it's funny that like my first performance was when I was seven years old in like year one at primary school. I sang in front of the whole school. So to oh. look at that, you'd be like, "Well, you'd have to have confidence like to be able to do that." But <laughs> I had confidence in the fact that I knew that I could hold a tune at yes. seven, and I knew that. I could hold a tune a lot better than most other seven-year-olds. So I felt safe doing that. Yeah, because yeah, you believed you're like, yeah, I back myself in. I yeah. know I'm good. Yeah. 
because so many people like that was the thing that they praised me about was either my singing or my smart like being intelligent so I based most of who I was like my identity around that um, and other aspects of myself didn't really get a look in because that mm. felt more fragile for me yeah than how strong the singing and the intelligence stuff felt okay well speaking of your identity when did you start sort of I guess warming to the idea of exploring your culture <laughs> um going down that path like um I know the first time you went to Broken Hill was a really important moment for mm-hmm. you yeah talk to us a little bit about that I think what I kind of it relates back to how I work now as well. Like I just meet people on their journey where they're at and whether no matter what culture you're from, like pushing someone when they're not ready is not going to end well for anyone. So I'm really glad that nobody pushed me into learning about it or pushed me into doing genealogy or learning about my family until I was at the point where it was staring me in the face and I was ready to do it. And it didn't happen until I was about 20 I reckon okay. 20, 20. So were you at uni then? Yes, yeah. yeah. So I was at uni. I'd done a few subjects in uni around like Aboriginal Australia and understanding cultural aspects, but they were really poorly run, like really badly run. They were run by all non-Aboriginal people, um, which was ironic. But very, very ironic. Um, yeah, I... I always found my way back to it in some way. So I'd always find myself, if we could choose a topic, I would choose that. Like if it was free choice, I would always go back to wanting to learn about Aboriginal culture or an aspect of Aboriginal culture. And then when I got to my thesis for my honours year, I wanted to look at um, patterns of Aboriginal youth suicide and why the rates were so much higher for Aboriginal youth compared to non-Aboriginal youth. And it wasn't until I started yarning with elders and people in community who, without even knowing my family or knowing where I was from, accepted me (laughs) straight away. Oh, um, There was one special uncle that I got to sit down with who was a nunkari, which is like a spirit healer person. Yes. Who was able to see my spirit in me and my family, my ancestors, and told me where everyone was from just I had never met him before in my life (laughs) and after I spoke to him my dad spoke to his mum who eventually let us know kind of the minimal stuff that she knew she just said well yeah like um her sister so my auntie has been researching and you know we know we know that it's there but we're not sure on specifics because of the our family changed the last name so we don't know how to trace it or, I don't know, went on some story. And um, once we kind of figured that out and Dad figured that out, Dad was always like, I've always known because he's always felt a connection to that country that he couldn't explain. And when we kind of went through the genealogy, he was like, oh, that all made sense, but I didn't really need to go through all of this to know <laughs> what I already knew and I was like yeah cool dad but like I need to have a bit of an understanding more so than someone just being like yeah we changed your name like I wanted to understand completely as much as I could like what had happened 
but that came a lot later because when I guess in some it's different for every family but for my family when we kind of had it confirmed there were some people that were really accepting of it and then there were some people that were just downright not accepting and didn't want to talk about it at all still um and so I didn't push those family members for information or for anything because again like everyone's at their own point in their journey so I'm not going to force someone to talk about something that they so sorry sorry let's just hold on for a sec (laughs) so your family so kind of knew that there was Aboriginal heritage but weren't sure yeah and no one really talked about it. It yeah. was just kind of swept under the rug. Yeah. It was my my grandma actually. I got her talking about it once. I've only ever got her to talk about it once. And she said that her dad, so my great-grandpa, called it the skeleton in the closet that they'd hidden so well that, like, no one was ever going to find it. Wow. Yeah. So that was not a fun conversation. Yeah. No, no one was so disconnected from your culture. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, like, I held a lot of anger towards a lot of people for a while, but then I was like, I understand historically why my family made that decision and being from such a, you know, a a country town, I know what type of racism would have been been happening there at that time. Yeah. So from what we've kind of figured out, our best guess is that it was done for protection Yes, that's exactly safe from government policies. So, yeah, yeah, once I kind of when when you because that's where my brain went straight away is yeah stolen generation and yeah trying to protect the family yeah hundred percent so it definitely makes sense it's just it took me a while to work through that feeling that I'd lost a lot of years that I could have been connected that I hadn't been and that I, how would have life been if I'd had that cultural safety and not what I had, but it took a lot of therapy, but we got there because I was like, I now like today kind of sitting here speaking to you now, being able to do the workshops that I do in schools is like the most healing thing that I could possibly do because every time I go in there, the kids are so excited to see me. They treat me like a blooming rock star, like I'm playing <laughs> my ego. And then a little piece of my, you know, primary school Katie's heart gets healed because I'm back in a school environment and all the kids are actually so excited to learn about culture and think it's so cool. They do. Like Katie has done these, like a few classes mm. with classes that I've had in the past just about culture and they do. They just, they lap it all up. Yeah. They really, really do. They're so interested. And I think that's like anything, anything that's um, unfamiliar to them or um, just seems like worlds apart from their reality, mm. they they just soak it all up because it's, yeah, they love hearing about everything, yeah. especially when you start talking about weapons and, <laughs> and the, the boys in particular. <laughs> Their little faces. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it is healing, but it's also, I'm very aware that it can be triggering and activating for me as well to be back in school, especially primary schools, primary school environment. Um, so, yeah, I make sure that I look after myself and I'm really aware of what can activate me 
in sessions and how to look out for it and all that cool stuff. But that's only come with like years of going through therapy myself um, and then gaining a better understanding of how that therapy works by doing like administering it as well um, has helped me kind of be more content with the way that my life kind of went and to try and see some good in it because now I can connect with other young people that have been disconnected and yeah. grown up really disconnected and they can kind of look at me and be like, oh, the journey's not over if you don't know where those connections are or you don't have a connection yet. Like there's still always ways to either find it or connect with local community and learn about culture in general. But, yeah, it's just really really healing and not something I would have predicted, you know, little Katie would never have predicted <laughs> big Katie yeah. would be going back no. to a school. Yes, and, and public speaking so yeah. often too. Yeah. And and now, you know, that's something that you want to get into is mm-hmm. uh, is speaking in schools. Like I know you're already doing it, but I'm, I'm, I know that as a psychologist, mm-hmm. a clinical psychologist, sorry, mm-hmm. um, you, when you finish um, your master's, that's something that you want to keep doing as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like when you first went to Broken Hill? Um, I think because, like, when I was little, we used to go to Broken Hill quite a lot. Okay. Um, but... I was little and it was a desert town and I was like, this is boring and lame. Like, why are we going here? (laughs) And there was like nothing to do. So as a kid, I was like, didn't like going there. So it wasn't until I kind of got older that dad, dad's fix for everything is go to Broken Hill. Like if I'm (laughs) cranky, if I'm sad, if I've had a bad day, dad would be like, Broken Hill, do you want to go Broken Hill? I'm like, Dad, it's not an hour, like it's a six and a half hour drive away. Like we can't just get in the car and chuff down the road. Like it's it's a trek. And he was like, nah, you know, if, if things are getting real bad, we need to go to Broken Hill. And it's the first time that he took me there when I was older and I could actually appreciate it. He took me out to um, Matawinji, which is a big national park, about 40 minutes out of Broken Hill. And we went for a hike and we had a local um, tour guide take us through there as well and tell us some dreaming stories and we spoke to him about how our family's from here and it was my first time being at Mudawindji. Um And I just kind of cried a lot. I remember crying a lot because it felt like home even though I'd never been there before. It was a really odd yeah. feeling and I'd been to Broken Hill but I'd never been to Mudawindji, which is – I'm biased, obviously, but it's one of the most beautiful places in the world if anyone ever gets a chance <laughs> to <laughs> Broken Hill or the area around there. Um, it's just so beautiful and so spiritual. Um, it kind of reminded me, I had a similar feeling when I went to Uluru. Okay. It was just a feeling of, like, peace and calmness and it was a 45-degree day, but oh. I don't know, my poor mother, we took my mum and <laughs> She just looked like a bright red tomato and the tour guide was freaking out that he was like, she was going to get heat stroke. She doesn't handle the heat very well. But me and dad were like chilling. We were like, oh, 45, that's great. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just remember being really calm and really happy and 
just at home. And then since that time going back, now I need to go back at least once every six months or so to kind of get my cup refilled to then come back to Adelaide and get into the swing of life. Um, But my spirit does call me to go back every six months. If I don't, I can tell like my mood starts to drop and it can can kind of mimic symptoms of depression, Um, but it's called longing for country. So I'm, I'm very well aware of what that looks like for me now. So when that starts to happen, I just tell dad and we hop in the car and he's the same, but he has a shorter amount of time. So I'm every once every six months, but he's like once a month. Oh, wow. Every five weeks he needs to go there. Um, Most of the time he goes by himself and just takes his swag. And yeah, we worry about him a bit because he's getting older and he goes out there and he doesn't take his sat phone or anything. Can we stress out? But he's like, I grew up here. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but yeah, he needs to go once a month because otherwise he gets very cranky and just yeah, it's that missing. It feels like a family member, like you're just missing a part of you that you need to replenish and just disconnect from technology and phones and the rush of life and just calm yourself down to then come back and get in the swing of it. But yeah, it kind of took me not doing that to realize how much I needed to do that. And ever since I have been doing it, my mental health has been doing so much better than when I wasn't doing that. So that's my that's, recipe now that I can't. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. I've always thought, um, yeah, connection to country has is just such a, a beautiful thing. I love hearing about it. It's so nice. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, while I've got you. Yes. Um, and we're talking about um, your culture and things. Can we quickly go over a few, like, terminology that we should and shouldn't use for anyone yeah. listening um, that, yeah, because, you know, are we using Aborigines still, Katie? <laughs> no, we are not. <laughs> no, why not, Katie? <laughs> um, the amount of times you would, you would laugh so hard, the amount of times that teachers still use this, um, even in high schools and stuff, they're still using it, and uni. Anyway it's it's my my one thing that when people say it I'm just like really it's 2023 what are you doing um basically no no we're not using that um so that terminology kind of stems back to government practices so when government had um like the Aborigines Protection Act and they were making laws specifically for Aboriginal people um that were obviously in no consultation with Aboriginal people they were purely laws to just manage us um and take children away and do all the things. So it has a really, really horrific historic um, meaning to it and it's just not its not a word that we use nowadays. But I do think a lot of people don't realise that that's where it stems from. Yeah, they, they wouldn't. And I think, again, like that is what would be in all the textbooks and books and all that sort of thing from like nine early noughties. Yeah. 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 So what should we be saying? Um, so it's it's really a personal preference, like down to the um First Nations, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Indigenous person that you're talking with. Um, I would say kind of safe words to use. So words that you could use that not people um are most likely to not get offended 
by in my experience everyone's different though so I'm not I don't want to talk for anyone else but for me I really like Aboriginal person or people yeah um I'm not the biggest fan of Indigenous or Indigenous people um it's not offensive by any means but it's probably not my preferred word just because Indigenous can be really broad so like anyone born in Australia is Indigenous to Australia because they were born here um so it's just a bit more broad and not as specific as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Yeah, because um, you can have like Indigenous South Americans yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, um, whereas Aboriginal is specific to Australian. Yeah. Australian. Yeah. Um, I always think too like one of the best things that you can kind of ask someone is like who their mob is um, and if they're like me, like they're Barkindji or they're Ghana or they're Nadanjeti or whatever then you can call them, oh, that's a Nadanjeti woman or a Ghana man or a mm-hmm. Barkindji woman or a Barkindji man or Noongar, which is a kind of like a nickname for Aboriginal people in WA or Nanga is like a nickname for Aboriginal people in SA, Kuri, Mari. Like there's all, there's words that if you educate yourself and you kind of ask people in community in a respectful way of like what word would you prefer, um, then you'll get a really educated answer rather than just assuming what somebody would prefer to be called. It's always nice to just check and be like, hey, um, maybe first off, do you know your language group? Because some people don't know yeah. where they're from. So saying like, um, do you know your language group? If you do, like would you prefer us to call you, you know, a Ghana person or a Ghana woman or whatever? If you don't know your language group, then would you prefer Aboriginal? Would you prefer Indigenous? It's It really just comes down to communication and not being scared to ask respectfully um, in terms of people's preferences. And But then on the flip side of that, I would say generally with like cultural questions, I wouldn't rely on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around you to answer those questions because that gets really tiring when you're constantly getting those types of questions when they could be researched themselves, if that makes sense. Like I get heaps of questions all the time from people that they could have Googled. Like they <laughs> definitely yeah. could have Googled it. Um, so kind of doing your own research first and then being like, right, well, there's a big gap here because maybe it's oral knowledge or it hasn't been written down or I can't get a good understanding of it. I just want to check my understanding or whatever it might be. Um, mm. I would say, yeah, but just. I think there's a lot of, there can be a lot of fear mm. for non-Aboriginal people, mm-hmm. which I'm speaking from experience as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I wanted to talk and teach about Aboriginal culture, but I was so fearful of saying the wrong thing, using the wrong language. Mm. Um, you know, yes, I know you can research and things, but there's still things I think that you almost you just want to double check and <laughs> yes, and, and terminology is one of those things. <laughs> yeah, definitely <laughs> that we want to be checking. Yeah, Hun- yeah, and like- and it honestly, wasn't until I had you in my classroom that I felt so much more confident to talk about Aboriginal culture in my classroom yeah. and teach kids and and yeah, I just had that confidence mm. to go about that because prior to that. I like Doesn't really right. say that I I like I really didn't go very in depth or anything because yeah because of that yeah yeah of, 
of saying the wrong yeah. thing. And I would say that's definitely not uncommon. I would say that's extremely common. And, yeah, I don't know what the answer is to help teachers not feel like that. I mean, I, I'd go back to, like, uni education being more just including that voice embedding things a little bit more and not having it as a separate topic or whatever but that's a whole nother discussion um but I always say like myself as a parent of an Aboriginal child I would much rather one of Dusty's teachers be a bit clumsy with how they word things or maybe say something that's not completely correct but be open to having someone like me or another parent come in and be like hey respectfully um you know, you taught this the other day and when we don't actually do that anymore or we do do it this way and just being open to having that conversation, I'd much rather that than have a teacher not try or not yeah. touch it or just do a little dabble in it and then not really do it or only do it in NAIDOC week and Reconciliation Week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's still happening. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, I would much sadly, but yes, be a bit clumsy with it and maybe make a few mistakes along the way but give it a red hot crack then kind of let that fear win and stop them from doing it um because kids are so receptive receptive. at at the school i work at like i i honestly i mean i I haven't worked there in a little while like full time or anything Mm. but certainly when i was there sort of a lot I think I really believe that you could have gone into any classroom and, you know, if you asked who was in Australia first, Mm -hmm. like Aboriginal people. Yeah. And definitely the upper primary, I think if you said, you know, what language group or like who are the Aboriginal people that are the traditional custodians of this land, maybe not in formal language, but they would be able to say the Ghana people. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's no way we had that. Oh my god, no. They were growing up. No, not at all. No. But um, what advice would you give to parents who are raising their children and wanting them to be culturally aware, culturally inclusive? Um, because I know for myself, um, we don't have a lot of people of colour in our, I guess, immediate, obviously in our immediate family or that we sort of come across regularly. Yeah. And I am so hyper aware of that that, and trying to make sure that I bring up my kids mm. to not be racist mm. and to be inclusive. Do you, like I know, yeah, what what do you think parents can be doing to make sure that young kids today their mental health isn't going to be affected like yours Mm, was mm. I really think like especially with little little cherubs the easiest way is to just introduce books into you know everyone has that nighttime story routine or a lot of people do um just adding some more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander books just into the bookshelf or into the bedroom or wherever all the books are and just make it embed it into everyday life have it been this normal thing of like oh we're gonna read this tonight it might be like little eddie's homies book the eddie betts book it might be like the adam briggs our home our heartbeat book which you can do a little rap to like 
finding little books that they love that can also teach them and just normalise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture in their everyday is the best way for them to just grow up with it ingrained in them and not have it be this big kind of separate thing. It can just be like a normal thing like, oh, my favourite book is this book that mummy or daddy reads or caregiver reads and I really love that book and that has Aboriginal people in it and there's heaps, of, especially in Adelaide, there's heaps of Ghana books with Ghana language of like counting one to ten body parts. Um, like there's, there's, because I went through um, Dusty's room just before he went to sleep <laughs> looking at all the books that he has and I pulled up like ten or twelve books without even digging too far um, that are all authored, um, illustrated by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, that at, you can buy at Big W, Target, Kmart, like they're not niche, you know, hard to find books. <laughs> they're really readily available, easy to get because um, I think books and education coming from that can be conversations and as they get that bit older, start introducing them to books that um, are at their developmental level. So when they get that bit older, they could look at Dark Emu, which is all around like Aboriginal people being the first scientists and learning about agriculture. And like there's so, there's so many books that can meet at each level. And then when they get to like young teen, like there's young adult novels that they can read. There's an Aboriginal superhero book, which is so deadly, but I can't even think of the name mm. in my head. But yeah, books would be my first point of call. <laughs> yes, I, as you can imagine. Yes. I really love that. Yes. I will be definitely getting you to send me photos yes. of those books and anyone, any that you recommend. Yes, I'll put them in the show notes and um, I will be purchasing myself. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I swear every time I go to the shop, I come home with a book. <laughs> I come home. Yes. And I was like, um, do we really need more books? And I was like, yes, we do. We do, actually. We always need more books. Yep. Um, so, yeah, books and then little things like music, like integrating some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander music into the house. Um, my son really likes Baker Boy and all of his music. It's it's kind of rap dance music, but there's no swear words in it. So Baker Boy, I always use him at my school workshops because he specifically doesn't swear <laughs> his songs. Awesome. Because <laughs> he knows that schools love his music and they play it all. Yeah. So, yeah, he doesn't swear, so we love him. Um, and, yeah, just looking through and finding some artists um, that the kiddos like or that they can dance to. I mean, Baker Boy's great to dance to as well. Dan Sultan. Um, there's so many amazing First Nation artists out there. But, you know, kids especially love music, love having a wiggle, car rides. <laughs> there's lots of easy ways to just kind of pop on a song and be like, ooh, and be curious with them about it too and be like, oh, this music is really fast. I wonder who this is. And then Baker Boy 2 sings in language. So he'll start singing in language and you'll be like, oh, I don't recognise that language. I wonder what he's speaking. And you can just both be curious about it and be like, oh, I wonder if we can learn those words. And then you can look them up. Baker Boy is a pretty easy-ish to learn because um, he does English and um, Yongu. So, yeah, you can learn both and then they're learning language and it's just becoming this, you know, everyday part of their life. It's just something they've grown up with and when they get that bit older they won't know any different and then hopefully 
when they get to school, the schools will be still doing what they're doing and teaching it more and integrating it more. So by the time the next generation get to high school, they've got all this knowledge, they've got all this understanding, like they know all these books, they know all these artists, they know all these people. So that's helping make the world a better place for other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people that are the same age as them that are going into high school because there's not going to be that unknown or that, oh, I, this is new to me or I don't know what this is. <laughs> like the fear of the unknown, it won't be there because it would have just been integrated into their life from when they're little. Um, and then there's also like the NAIDOC Family Fun Days. Adelaide, every major city in Australia has them. Everyone is always welcome to go to them. There's always really cool music and stalls and performers and like welcome to countries. And yeah, it's one of the most welcoming, like beautiful places that you could take your children to learn oh. about culture. Um, is it on the weekend normally? Or is it I think the so. Don't quote me. But uh, sometimes in Adelaide, the NADOC, Family fun day sometimes falls on a Friday. Okay. And then, yeah, there's all different days. But I think if you Google like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander important dates for the year, okay. that should come up with a few different dates. But Because um, that sounds really cool. Yeah, like it's just a fun, a fun old time. Same with Reconciliation Week. There's always activities and things to be doing like in community um it's just finding where they are I guess and like having to actively kind of search for them if you're not a part of you know the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community it's kind of getting on Google and having a bit of a sus there's always Facebook event pages that are open to everyone and um Facebook groups that are open to everyone they're they're normally pretty well advertised within like community <laughs> circles so it's yeah. trying to spread it out wider so that people that want to be involved so that maybe don't have family or friends in that community can get involved and show their kids like how cool it is um and then tv shows is little j because yes yeah i love that yeah <laughs> it's one of our favorites <laughs> um and that's like a really cool way too for them to hear like aboriginal slang and learn words and like just be immersed in that naturally and it's really entertaining as well so you kind of get the both best of both worlds like they're entertained but they're learning as well but yeah if you kind of combine or take a few from each category <laughs> be like, All right, we can get a few books and we're going to find music and we're going to do this like you don't have to obviously do everything at once but yeah small steps of integrating things lead to that bigger outcome of it just being normalized for them it's just a part of everyday life for them, something they learn and it's not this other thing. Yeah, I love that so much. Mm, yeah. And I love, yeah, how you talked about that, just integrating it. It's, yeah, so, so special, yeah. I think, to be giving our kids those opportunities and, yeah, especially when we, we weren't exposed to that oh, yeah. at all. 100%. Yeah, because yeah. then they're, yeah, like I said, like high school will hopefully look a lot different for that next generation coming up than what it did for me and what it did. Like I know others that had it 50 million times worse than me. Mm. It's like my story is nothing compared to a lot of people that I've spoken to. So, yeah, easing that 
for anyone. It just comes through education and just normalising and integrating and not having it be this thing that's feared because it's unknown or because they've never had any education on it or understanding of it. But, yeah, if we just integrate and they're going to grow up being like, oh, I know who Baker Boy is or I know who um, Briggs is or I know Eddie Betts and I know this person and kind of expanding it out of sport as well I think is really important and not to yeah. like sing yeah. on the famous AFL players that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Like that's awesome and deadly and cool and we love that too. But like there's so many deadly people out there that aren't in sport. Yes. Don't get as much spotlight for yeah. especially for little ones. They'd look up to the sports stars and all that, which is cool. But yeah, just finding little ways to be like, Oh, look at this cool person. We're gonna learn about Eddie Marbo today. Um and he was so deadly and he did this thing and we're gonna just talk about him today. Just the little things like that. It just adds up. So, and there are, I'm pretty sure, like picture books. Yes. There's that series. Yeah. The, like, the, is it important? What's it called? Yeah. Yeah. Heaps of different, all different famous yeah. people. I can see it. Life. Yeah. I can yeah. picture the well, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, I know it'll come. Studio in Summerton Park. Stock, yeah. Stock them. I'm sure they're um, stocked in lots yeah. of different places. But, I reckon um, W does as well. Yeah, they probably do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, to finish up, I was going to ask for a recommendation, but I feel like you just gave us lots of recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> I just word vomited recommendations. Right? <laughs> so I'm probably going to let you off the hook there and <laughs> say that you recommended lots of picture books and, yeah, shows. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming, Katie, no, on to my first episode with a guest um it's been so nice talking to you and i'm i'm so impressed that we didn't get the giggles again um yeah and look at us you know kids are in bed it's nearly nine (laughs) o'clock at night i don't know about you but i'm in my pajamas oh yeah my dressing gown in my um (laughs) with a wrapped around me and a face mask on yeah Um, yeah but yeah, I really appreciate you doing this in your own time, especially no after bedtime. And in, yeah, this is your precious time. So thank you so much. And I'm very, very excited to um, have part two and part three with you down the track. Awesome. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The Hey There Sunshine podcast acknowledges that we are recording on the traditional country of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. And we also extend that respect to other Aboriginal language groups and other First Nations peoples.